Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Clark from Mega Brands. Man, I'm on a roll. This is the third podcast conversation I've had in seven days. So uh, I'm going to go off the reservation, though. Normally, as an equity guy, I'm typically having conversations with equity managers. This time is a little different. You know, normally, I think people worry about stocks. That seems to be the conventional wisdom. But in my opinion, with rates basically falling for 35 years or so, you know, people need to, to be concerned and focused about what assets they own on the fixed income side. You know, I just don't think, this is my humble opinion, but I don't think that people will generate the returns and have the same low volatility experience that they've had over the last, you know, 30 years that we've kind of grown accustomed to in their fixed income assets going forward with rates, you know, so low. And so that's going to force advisors and investors to try to maybe think outside the box. Sometimes that's in other unique asset classes within fixed income. Sometimes it's in some alternative asset classes and even, you know, shifting out into more equities and dividends, et cetera. But today's conversation, I'm really excited about, we're going to talk about a really obvious and interesting asset class within fixed income with a specialist, Leland Abrams with Wincoop LLC. They are the sub-advisor for a mutual fund called the Catalyst Enhanced Income Strategy Fund. And, you know, just full disclosure, the Dynamic Brands Fund that I run with my team at AccuVest, we're a sub-advisor for Irrational Funds. They are connected to the Catalyst Mutual Fund Group. So this is kind of a in the family type of conversation. You know, the more I dig into this strategy and this asset class, the more intrigued I get. So Leland, welcome. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I do a lot of calls with advisors and they're constantly talking to me about equities. And then when I ask them one probing question about, you know, what's your view on fixed income? What are you doing? Usually it's crickets. People just don't necessarily 
know what to do because their entire careers have been focused on just doing the same thing. You know, have a little credit risk, have a little interest rate risk, be mostly traditional fixed income. Everything is fine. And it's all worked. And it's all worked. Um, until now. And if you look at, you know, even the ag, for example, I mean, the ag is down 300 basis points year to date. And that's just in, you know, what, two and a half months. So the thing that's changed really, or the thing that I think a lot of advisors either didn't know or didn't want to recognize was that much of the return that was generated in these fixed income portfolios over the last 35 years has been a rate trade. Interest rates have come down and then credit spreads as well. But by and large, the biggest move has been in the interest rates, not necessarily credit spreads. So now when we're coming from a position of all-time tights on credit spread at all-time lows on interest rates, you have an asset class that in general is obviously huge. It's a component of almost everybody's portfolio, particularly retirees, which happen to be overweight now in terms of a demographic in this country. And you have a portfolio of stuff that yields nothing and only has downside. So that is why your advisors kind of scratch their head. And I think don't want to necessarily face the reality of what this portion of their portfolio looks like and the return profile or, or what the whole world might portend for this part of the portfolio. So they just want to ignore it sometimes. And hopefully, you know, unless they're presented with something that's compelling, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a negative return environment for most fixed income product going forward. I would hope that as rates have moved up, they have seen the fixed income side of the ledger be a little bit uninspiring. And so maybe that's prompted them to start thinking about what other things they could do. Because, you know, it's not as if you have to replace all of the total return, right? If your average bond portfolio with multi-assets in there has returned X with a yield of Y, they probably have to replace, what do you think, half of that? as interest rates go up, or do they have to replace most of it? I don't know. Well, certainly anything with duration, they need to be very conscientious of. You know, the the municipal side of the world, I don't really know a whole lot about. It's not my token, but there's obviously geopolitical risks involved with that and certain factors moving around that are either good or bad for municipals, given some tax policy. But by and large, the way I think of it is, if you look at traditional fixed income, most people think of traditional fixed income as the corporate bond market, which is about an $8 trillion market. Corporate bonds have investment-grade corporate bonds, and you have high-yield corporate bonds. IG corporates right now yield around 2%. So after advisor fees to the client, they're looking at a negative real rate of return, particularly with rising inflation expectations. So you have a negative real rate of return on the yield side, and then you also have negative total return as rates go higher. So that sounds like a horrible investment. It's like, it's, it's really asymmetrically skewed only to lose. Right. Um, people are better served to hold cash in some events. So even short duration, it's okay, but it's not really going to make your client any money. Certainly not going to make them rich. High yield, you're taking on tons of credit risk. And more important than credit risk, I always think that, I think of, I think of high yield corporate bonds and, and, and I'm going a little bit off the, the side here and, and I like to exaggerate a little bit, but High-yield corporate bonds, to me, are almost like a Ponzi scheme. They're only worth par insofar as the company can refinance them, which means the capital markets have to be there available to give them liquidity or give them new cash vis-a-vis a new bond deal. If the market doesn't give them a new bond deal, then they default. And what's the recovery traditionally on high-yield? 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. So it's a very digital outcome. 
either the capital markets refinance them and you get par, happy days. If the capital markets are in a time of uh, a slippery period, like, like last March or April, then all of a sudden you default and you get 20 cents on the dollar and that's that. So that's a really, again, bad outcome for an asset class that yields around four. So let's talk about, I mean, we joked about this before we got on the call. You know, both of us are really interesting. We play in very interesting, obvious, massive markets. I'm the consumer guy, you know, consumer spending drives every economy. It's 40 plus trillion a year around the world. It's 70% of GDP here. And yet most people are underweight the theme, which is kind of ironic. You play in the RMBS market, the residential mortgage-backed securities market. You have the data on that market, but I'm guessing the housing market is enormous. So the, the housing market and then what funds the housing market is the mortgage bond market. The largest capital market out there is U.S. Treasuries. When I ask people, what do you think the second largest is? They're either usually baffled and often very rarely get the right answer, which is interesting, actually. So the real answer, and I said, even if you don't know, well, I'm a mortgage guy, so just guess that it's mortgage is sort of like a trick question. But yes, just like you play in the largest part of the market, the consumer side, we are in the second largest behind U.S. Treasury market in fixed income, the residential mortgage-backed securities market. That's about 13 trillion, not billion, 13 trillion in size is the mortgage bond market, which is nearly 50% bigger than the corporate bond market. So you're talking about 50 plus trillion of assets between the consumer spending component of GDP and the, the RMBS market. And yet most advisors, most investors have very little dedication, which to me is the opportunity, right? We're here today, here's what you have and here's why it might maybe not deliver the returns that you hope that it will given the past. And here's what you might consider given where we are in the cycle, where we are with interest rates for your market. So I probably can't think of a more timely time to have a conversation than right now about this market. Yes, so that's why you know I thought, as did you, such a, um, a compelling theme for us to sit here and talk together, given that we both are involved in markets that are massive, yet not only massive, but the largest markets in their respective categories and underweight in almost everybody's portfolio, which is ironic. And as you said, I think that drives some of the opportunity for sure. And the other thing is that while we're sitting on different ends of the spectrum for the investment spectrum, both things we do are by nature very identifiable with the underlying investor. Most people who have investable money have or have had a mortgage. So just like with you, consumer staples or consumer brands, most people easily can identify those names. Same thing for a mortgage, a fixed income. It's not only is it not alien to invest in a mortgage bond fund, it should make perfect sense because almost everybody has or has had written that check in the past pay it online or whatever you do. So they know about paying a mortgage. What they probably don't know is the flow of funds. How does the money go and where does it come back? If you invest in a fund like ours, you can think of it as actually getting back some of that money you pay every month if you have a mortgage, which should make everybody feel kind of rosy when thinking about where that money is going. Eventually, you write your check, it's collected by a mortgage servicer. Mortgage servicer gives it to a bond trustee. The bond trustee pays the bondholders. In this case, the enhanced income fund owns these bonds, gets paid by them every month. We take a nominal fee out. 
and then pay the investors in EIX all that money as a dividend monthly. So that's the flow of funds. Again, just like uh, with you, easily identifiable with almost anybody. Everybody knows what a mortgage is or just about everybody. And here's how the money goes and here's how it can come back to you. It's funny. One of the things that I talk about with advisors is, you know, there's no better hedge to your spending than identifying the companies that you just love and you're persistently spending on and going out and buying the stocks. I have an analysis that shows, you know, if you would have put money in Lululemon five years ago, over your return of the S&P would have given you, you know, hundreds of dollars a month to go buy Lulu stocks just to give. Yeah, I, mean, I went to Lululemon to buy a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and that was like $500. So. <laughs> so, so I get it though, but clients, you know, this know what you own, I think it's so obvious, but it's underutilized. I mean, let's talk about the fund, you know, again, the fund's called Catalyst Enhanced Income Strategy Fund. So you're investing mostly in non-agency RMBS, is that correct? That's right. But within the non-agency market, we focus on legacy or very old. And the reason is, again, you don't need to be a bond guru to sit here and think to yourself, or let me ask you the question, do you think people who have been paying their mortgage for 15 years, specifically paid it through the crisis, had negative equity in their homes for five years, are still paying today and now have 60% home equity? Do you think they're going to default? Nope. So just like you said, no. Very seasoned mortgage borrowers with tons of pay history, specifically through such a trying period, as well as now having accumulated a lot of home equity from both amortization or delevering, we call it, underlying loan, plus housing price appreciation in aggregate, those are not the kind of people who are going to default. Now, that market of what we call legacy or very seasoned non-agency mortgages is still... 250 billion in size. Our fund today is 255 million. So we have ample opportunity to continue to invest in this space. And as time goes by, mortgages that were created after will get the season token themselves. So there's never going to be a shortage of season mortgages. And we like those season mortgages because when mortgages get older and older, they tend not to refinance so much, irrespective of the rate that they pay. And as a result, we should be able to take advantage of the season mortgage market for a while. We also invest in a segment of the agency mortgage bond market. And this is what we do to really protect against rates. So while 95% of our portfolio is in these legacy, seasoned, senior, non-agency mortgage-backed securities, they have a very short duration because they're open window, meaning they're amortizing, paying down roughly two to two and a half year duration there. So we have very little interest rate sensitivity for most of those bonds. We have a mixture of fixed rate and some floating rate. In fact, I really don't have much, if any, interest rate sensitivity. We have 5% of our portfolio in something that really punches above its weight in rising rates. Mortgages, agency mortgages are the largest segment of the, of the uh, mortgage bond market. And just like non-agency, they're pulled together into bonds. The bond manufacturers, if you want to call them that, or the bond creators or the bond structurers, they can take the cash flows that come from a pool of mortgages and create lots of different types of bonds. So the bonds that we focus on for this small segment of our portfolio are called interest-only bonds off of agency mortgages. Not to be confused with interest-only mortgages, because these are coming from conventional, typically Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, sometimes Ginnie Mae mortgages. Now, I'll ask you a question. Do you think a Fannie Mae 2% mortgage is refinanceable or ever will be refinanceable in the future? Probably not. Meaning, exactly. But probably not. But do you know where I can buy that 2% interest-only bond? Between 8 and $0.10 cents on the dollar. 
So I can pay four or five years multiple for the 2% coupon. If it lasts longer than that, then we start actually earning. That's said very simply, but I'll ask you, you know, the flip side here, or not the flip side, but ultimate value. What's 30 times two? 60. 60. So I just paid eight for something that's worth potentially 60. Now we have to discount it back a little bit in the bond world. So it's not worth 60 today, but the ultimate stream of cash flows is worth 60. So even if we discount that back at 5%, then it's worth like 45. So so why why that anomaly? You would think, you know, in a world where, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there, why would those opportunities exist? I'm simplifying it a little bit. Because I'm simplifying it, I'm looking at it from a slightly more simple perspective. You know, we see the forest through the trees. If you are just an agency IO guy, the amount of spreadsheets and hedging that these guys do would make your head spin. You'd probably throw up if you saw it. It's crazy town. And not to diminish what those folks do, but they are looking for a very specific basis between all these different mortgage instruments and aren't necessarily expressing these as a naked view. What we are doing is saying, if rates go up, these bonds will go up tremendously in value and pay positive carry along the way. If you pay 10 for a bond with a two coupon, your current yield is 20. If the face doesn't go down and the bond goes up in value, then its total return is even more. So we love these as a positive carry rate hedge. This year alone, they punched above their weight very quickly. You know, our fund is up nearly 2%. Meanwhile, the ag is down 300 basis points. It's a 500 basis point swing in two and a half months, partly because of, of these instruments. So with most of our book, is relatively rates agnostic, maybe likes lower rates a little bit, is not bothered by higher rates much. And then we've got this 5% really packing some power in rising rates. And it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. So they're going up in value. And one example is we bought a bond. It was a strip down. It was down to one and a half coupon. Strip down two is to one and a half. We bought it at eight on January 8th. We sold it last week at almost 12 and it paid interest for two months. Our total holding period return in two months was 47%. So we made $432,000 of profit on an $880,000 investment in two months. And, and it's just one example. Obviously, we have a lot of them, but that shows you what these do. And it did what it's supposed to do in rising rates. Right. Just so everybody understands, listen, I, I'm the equity guy. I don't spend much time on bond asset classes. So I did, before our conversation, I just did some snooping on the asset class. And from January 31st of 2012 through the end of February, the RMVS index, just as a proxy for your kind of your asset class, is up a total return of about 315% versus the ag index at up 30%. I mean... (laughs) An asset class that you understand, particularly if you own a mortgage, with strong income, a history of great returns, and nobody owns it. I mean, well, institutions own it. Own it. I mean, from a retail perspective, right? From a retail perspective, no, it's a relatively newcomer. Right. The similarities between both of our dedications (laughs) are just keep growing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) brands have a history of strong returns. When you're highly relevant and you're serving a global market, you tend to be a pretty good stock. And and when I look at the data, just on your asset class, not even the fund, 
It's pretty impressive, I, I have to say. And I'm a skeptical guy. I have a lot of buddies in the industry. Well, uh, I'll caveat it. Obviously, part of the return is there because of what 2008 did of course. Uh, to the housing market. So what happened was a lot of these bonds, we had a marketplace that went from a levered funding arbitrage to a credit market overnight. And those who were in it had to basically learn what this stuff was from scratch, again, in 2008-9. In 2009, you could buy one of these senior RMBS bonds. Listen to this. Assuming you were going to default 85% of the pool. So if you had a thousand loans, the assumption was only 150 of them were good. So you're gonna default 85% of them at an 85% loss severity, meaning you only get 15 cents on the dollar back per home. So think of that. The assumption was default 85% of all the loans, get back 15 cents on the dollar from them, and now solve for a 15 to 20% yield to maturity for 10-year asset, 10-year duration. So assuming you're going to get back par, if it was a money good asset, if you assume 20% return over 10 years, I mean, I think you have to buy the bond at half of 50, 25, that would be like 12 cents on the dollar or 15 cents on the dollar to get 20% return for 10 years to get back up to par. Okay. So you'd be in the teens, assuming it was par. We're assuming you're going to blow out 85% of all this stuff at a 15% recovery meaning you had to buy this stuff at pennies on the dollar, literally pennies on the dollar for some senior bonds, and they wound up paying off a par. Uh, so that was how crazy it was. And that's sort of why, if you look then, the return profile is, is really crazy. Well, but if you what know- is, Over time, the assumptions kept getting better and better as data would show you every month, wait, not everything is bad. Not all of this was fraud. Not all of it was going to default. Now, all that garbage was cleared out of there a decade ago. So now you're left with just performing pools of mortgages, which are actually pretty easy to, to assess and predict, make predictions on. So a natural question an advisor would probably have is, okay, sounds really intriguing. Let's use traditional fixed income. So we got the high yields, we got the converts, we have the you know investment grades, then we have the floaters, then we have the short duration. From a risk profile perspective, where might your strategy fall because I, I know, you know, it's they like just like <laughs> like to spread out their risk. They have a little bit of higher risk, higher volatility with higher yields, with some lower stuff. So where where do you? I, fall? I, I would put us on the short duration investing grade corporate spectrum as a relative risk. Got it. Uh, yet we yield almost three times as much. Okay. Well, so just for everybody that's listening, I mean, as a guy who again talks to advisors all the time and has a bunch of buddies who are wholesalers for big firms to see where all the flows are going. Just so everybody knows, and not to pick on Lord Abbott, but I'll pick on Lord Abbott. Lord Abbott, short duration, since your fund, and correct me if I'm wrong, your fund started 12-31-18 when you took over this fund, right. is that correct? We launched it from scratch. Okay, so the Lord Abbott short duration funds up nine total return, you're up 26, <laughs> right? And that's not picking on Lord Abbott. Transamerica short-term bond, which is a great short-term, you know, short-duration income, again, is up nine. Yeah, or, or you look at PIMCO income. PIMCO income's up 14. You're right. Up and so they're, they're like the best. Right. And, um, and guess what the biggest holding they have in that $130 billion fund? Not agency mortgages. One of the biggest holdings they have. We refer to them as the whale or the king in, right. in our space. They're the, they're the biggest. But again, we're smaller. We're nimble. We're a pure play. We deploy strategies like active trading strategies 
that take advantage of some of the inefficiency and opacity in the market. We turn that into alpha, and we have that very unique little bucket of agency interest-only bonds, which can punch above their weight in, in, in rising rates. So a lot of reasons for our outperformance, but um, you know, I think the, the chair presents a compelling opportunity in of itself. And I think you know, myself and my team as managers amplify that opportunity. So you know, back to your question of other common questions. And since it was something I talked about, the crisis and whatnot, a common question is how would your fund have done or how would these bonds have done in 2008? And I say, well, that's, that's sort of, I see what you're asking and it's an unfair question. And the reason is because the stuff was new then. So the proper question, or I'd say that the better question would be, how would seasoned non-agency mortgages have performed through that crisis? And I have the answer, almost without a hiccup in performance. If you looked at mortgages that were originated in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was almost no impairment through 2007, 8, 9 in performance. I'm just always amazed at how these hidden gems out there exist for people, you know, to to not understand. And maybe there's just, are there not a lot of options for this category out there? And so that's why this is- Other than it being embedded in a lot of the big guys' portfolios, pure plays that are under, you know, a couple billion, there's like a handful. Okay. So so we're talking about something that's been around a long time, that's really prevalent, but it's just, has, it hasn't really made its way to the retail market. And that's where you saw the opportunity. I mean, is that a fair well, statement? Of course. But in 2010, could you go to retail and say, hey, you want to buy some subprime senior RMBS bonds? Probably. So it had to be private pools of capital. It had to be hedge funds, private equity to take it down then. Um, and now that it's matured and we all kind of know what it is and we all know what it's worth, now it's a much different story and something that's available for a retail. It's sort of the way the market's going. I mean, it is, it is what it is. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, some retail you know, had the, the great fortune of being able to get invested in it either passively or, or not from 10 years ago. But, but generally speaking, it was an institutional. Okay. So on the equity side, I always tell people we're, we're not style box focused. I'm an opportunist. If the money is to be made, in value brands or smaller companies or non-US companies, I'm happy to go there. I'm not going to get stuck in a style box. From your perspective in your market, are there lots of places to go within your market? Or I guess what I'm asking is, you know, break down the portfolio to give us some idea of where you're seeing the best opportunities in your market today. And if there's kind of the diametrically opposed market within your area that you could go to if you saw the opportunities, or is it, you know, you stay in your lane sure. the whole time? So our mandate and my career has mostly been on structured credit as a whole. So structured credit as a whole covers not just residential mortgages, but commercial mortgages, automobile loans, credit card receivables, student loan receivables, aircraft leasing receivables, marketplace lending, manufactured housing. I mean, you, you name it. Anything with a stream of cash flow is securitized. So our ability to understand structure is most important. And then collateral is always number two. Because I'll ask you a question. What do you think performed better? A subprime junior bond. So this is your capital structure, the bottom piece on the bond, of the bottom bond on the capital structure. On a subprime deal, 620 FICO, no doc, no job, no, not, no nothing loan. Or the bottom bond on a prime deal. Which do you think performed better over the last 15 years? So like a 750 FICO prime, I mean, the best of the best, 
good mortgage and then your 620 FICO garbage subprime bond. I think in theory it would be the it would be the quality bond. I don't know if that's true right. or not. <laughs> it's not true. So right. the collateral performed better as a whole, but the bond structure protected those subprime junior bonds more. So the actual it's funny the performance on subprime junior bonds is better than many of the prime deals out there. Ironically, right, and that's why I say structure deal structure understanding these structured bond deals is more important than the collateral. You can figure out the collateral. That's pretty easy. So right now, the place with the biggest mess is the commercial mortgage bond market. So what do you think a mall in Albany, New York, that's got JCPenney and Regal Cinemas is worth? We're not really, we're looking, we're looking on the periphery. We own two very small commercial mortgage senior bonds in our portfolio, bonds that have basically no credit risk, in terms of those that are dicier, you know, this is not the vehicle to invest in dicey mortgage bonds, whether they're commercial or not. So we would rather wait and let things cure for there to be much more probable outcome before we make any kind of sizable shift into that. But as an asset class right now, that's completely a wreck. That's one for sure. Okay. And there's, you know, think about it, hotels, malls, offices, I mean, neither three of those look very rosy right now. So. Right. There's got to be big buyers lurking, you know, private equity, KKR, Apollo, Black. They are. They're in there. Right. They're just waiting. They're waiting for trouble to be able to pounce. And I'm sure lots of guys will follow in. So, you know, there's always opportunity in distress. And if you're willing to be patient, like you said, you know, sometimes it's rather than anticipating something. You kind of sit back and you wait for the for, for the fat pitch, <laughs> and then well, we, you look. If, if we miss the first move, I'm fine with that because right now it's a guessing game to a large extent. So, like I said, we'd much rather have clarity and just get, earn a little bit less to have that clarity than than take a bet. We're not in the business of taking bets on on potential outcomes. We like to know the future outcome with a very high degree of certainty. Right. So, within the fixed income allocation, I mean, one, I think, would you agree the sixty forty of old probably needs to have a major facelift? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> so within the fixed income bucket for people, you said you're probably most kind of correlated, if you will, as a short duration basket. I know they're sold as cash alternatives. I don't think that they should be sold as cash alternatives. No, but, they but shouldn't, and nor would I say we are. I mean, the idea, look, if you in the new era, post Dodd-Frank, Liquidity in all asset classes, particularly fixed income asset classes, is just lower than it used to be. So it's unfair that a lot of a lot of folks may pick on you know the, the mortgage bond market as being not that liquid. It's very unfair because if you look at what happened in March, yeah, you know the price of liquidity went through the roof. But actually, the days of the most liquidity, if you look at SIFMA bond data. We're at the end of March into early April. So more stuff traded then, you know, times 10 than it does normally. But everyone says there was no liquidity. It's sort of a cop-out for those who are invested in, in junior or dicey bonds, in my opinion. Yes, liquidity got more expensive. But the reason it got more expensive was because people didn't know what was going to happen. The initial knee-jerk was that the housing market was going to be toast again. That was the knee-jerk reaction. So not only was that wrong, it happened to go the other way, where housing is just doing exceptionally well. So liquidity 
even in U.S. Treasuries, is not the same as it was 15 years ago. And same thing applies for corporate bonds or municipal bonds or mortgage bonds. All fixed income has some element of liquidity risk, and therefore nobody should call any of this stuff a cash alternative. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how things get sold, <laughs> but I want to make sure that we're we're positioning the fund, the asset class, the benefits and the features of that asset class, and your active management accordingly. And you know, from a returns perspective, from a volatility thus far perspective, from a story, you know, differentiation perspective, it's pretty solid. I mean, I'm not surprised why you know, folks are, you know, within the Catalyst sales team are talking about the strategy because it's just, it's rare when you're a salesperson or a marketing person and you go out and have a conversation with an advisor and you can talk to them about a story they haven't heard before that has a history of being a pretty compelling opportunity. And, you know, I find and, that- and, and, and just given what rates have done, it's, it's very prescient right now. Uh, so, honestly, it's a pretty easy sale. And whether it's our fund or another fund, you know, the category is an easy sale, then you can go ahead and pick your manager. But generally speaking, just the overall picture, the category should be very compelling to most advisors. Awesome. Just to kind of close, is there anything else that you think about your strategy or about the, the fixed income markets or your firm or your differentiation you want to talk about, or if you guys do some research and there's a website people can go to, you know, anything you you, you want to mention, please do. You know, we, we do put out some white papers and things. I mean, I certainly did that during March and April. And I would say the one thing that really separates us from the pack is the active strategy. So not only do we get to take bid offer, it gives us, you know, if you look at March as an example, we were down 8% March, 2020. I think you put that Lord Abbott short duration was down like 10. Um, there are funds in our category that were down 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% in really, really, really big numbers. So that has to do with two things. Number one, where are we buying the capital structure? We're only buying at the top. We don't buy levered securities. A lot of folks in our space, again, fail to talk about capital structure and deal structure and only talk about collateral. If you only talk about collateral, chances are you're buying the bottom expression of that collateral, which is sort of doing a disservice to everybody. I'll give you a mathematical example. If you have a bond deal that's this bottom to top thick, it's backed by 1,000 loans. Now let's say they're all good loans. Let's say they're prime jumbo 750 FICO good loans. If you carve it up and the bottom slice is only zero to one, 1% thick, which is the way they were done, then you only have an expression of the 10 worst loans in that pool. You do not have the diversity of a thousand good loans. You're only buying the worst loans in the deal. This, for some reason, is, an, is a concept that's alien to the most seasoned managers in our space. So there are a lot of guys who are, and ladies who have been doing this for a long time and don't think like this. They just think that it's great collateral, therefore I can buy the junior bonds that yields more. But you're not buying the collateral. You're buying the worst bond in the deal structure backed by the collateral. So when changes of sentiment occur, or sentiment changes occur, or the outlook on the collateral performance changes. That bond can go from par to nearly zero immediately. And that's sort of what, what happened in March to, to some people. So again, we're very obsessed with structure, being at the top of the capital structure, and then actively trading it. So that what that does is 
knowing that large players were in the marketplace buying portfolios, 500 million, a billion at a clip, and there was a food fight to buy 500 million or a billion at 500 spread. Meanwhile, I could go pluck off individual bonds sloshing around in the market at 800 or 1,000 spread. Well, as much as we humanly possible can buy, because I know the market's already moved, but these other guys don't know the market's moved yet because they don't talk to these players. So that's the benefit. It's either a benefit or a detriment of some of the opacity here. We use that opacity to our advantage. Before I started my own business, when I was a manager in a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, I have been schooled since the infancy of this asset class, pre-crisis, through the crisis, post-crisis. We know most of the players. We're friendly with a lot of them. You know, While it's hard to necessarily quantify the value there, I'm more than sure is a positive attribute to our overall performance and ability to manage a fund like this in this space. Right. I mean, for everybody listening, I'm not saying rates are going to go straight up. Nobody knows what's going to happen. There's a lot of different variables that drive that. But I'm pretty confident. Leland's, if I can speak for you, you're pretty confident. I think behind closed doors, if you ask most fixed income managers, if they were confident their return series going forward was going to be a fraction of what it was when rates were falling on a trending basis, I think they would all agree, right? So this is gonna force people to think differently about that part of their portfolio. And this asset class absolutely has a place for people inside of the portfolio. I think the returns speak to it, the volatility thus far has spoken to it, the differentiation has spoken to it, the income that you have that's generating on a monthly basis is clearly speaking to it as people get older. So if you're interested in more of that information, you can email me on the website or Leland, what's your uh, your website or your email, whatever you would like to give out? Sure. It's Leland Abrams. So my corporate email is L Abrams, as it's L-A-B-R-A-M-S at winecoopfinancial.com. That's W-Y-N-K-O-O-P financial.com. Terrific. And, uh, you know, for our catalyst and rational sales teams, you obviously have somebody in your local regions. If you have some questions on the dynamic brands fund or the enhanced income strategy fund, you can always reach out to your local sales and marketing team as well. Thanks, man. Love the asset class. I'm a believer. I I appreciate you having me, Eric. Thanks for setting this up. And again, I'm very passionate about it. I like talking about it as do you. So Happy to do it again. Happy to field questions down the road. So please keep coming. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Take care. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.